Hello, and welcome to the Green Minds podcast. Showcasing the science, stories and solutions behind climate change with Phoebe Scott, Alex Miller, Lottie Flashness and Guy Wilkinson. Hello and welcome to another episode of IB Green Minds. Joining me today is Lincoln Lee, co-founder of Rice Inc, an award-winning social enterprise that aims to make rice farming more sustainable. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much and it's great to be here. So in a nutshell, maybe I should say in a rice husk, what is Rice Inc? Uh, in a rice husk, that's actually the first time I've heard that. <laughs> um, so Rice Inc, we're a social enterprise uh, whose goal is to basically tackle smallholder rice farmer poverty in the rice industry. So over half of rice farmers around the world are under the poverty line and up to 30% of the crops they produce actually get wasted every year before it even gets to plate. Um, and there are two re- main reasons why this happens. So the first is that they face a very convoluted supply chain. So they get very low prices at sale. Um, and second is that this then keeps them in a cycle of poverty. So the farmers can't afford proper equipment uh, or agri-tech and they resort to using very traditional practices. So this means that they use traditional techniques that sometimes result in a lot of wastage. So what we do at Rising is we aim to tackle both the waste and the <clears throat> what is keeping them in the cycle of poverty. So we try to operate, a, we basically operate a direct trade rice brand called Paddy in the UK and we reinvest profits to help build a sustainable supply chain by creating access to these technologies that the farmers lack. So we give them better dryers, more eco-friendly storage devices, and all sorts of other technologies that we think will fit in their current context, um, hopefully to help them save the waste that occurs and also be more environmentally friendly at the same time. Could you um, speak a bit more about the, the dryers or the environmentally friendly storage devices? Yes, so I think I'll just focus. Most of our experience uh, has been with rice drying in the past. So what happens is that uh, how rice works is first you, after harvest, uh, rice needs uh, rice needs to be dried and then it's stored and then milled before it becomes ready for your plate. So what happens mostly around the world is that in more developed, uh, I guess, supply chains, the rice is processed. uh, The whole process is thoroughly mechanized. So you get, you get harvesting completely mechanized. Um, you get these huge industrial dryers uh, drying the rice, and then you get these huge silos where they store the grain and they mill it with huge milling machines. Uh, unfortunately, in Southeast Asia, uh, most of the time, majority of the farmers are smallholder farmers with sizes from acres of like one acre to five acres. And so they use more traditional techniques. Uh, so many of them actually do harvest with machinery, um, but they probably don't own the machinery themselves. They rent it from someone. Um, but after harvesting, a lot, a vast majority of farmers still use the practice of sun drying, so drying it under the sun. <clears throat> and this means literally uh, leaving it on a piece of tarp on the road under the sun, and it can take up to six days for it to be dried efficiently. And you have to continuously flip the rice, which is quite a laborious process. Um, and that actually <clears throat> causes some of it to be lost to pests, some of it to be badly dried. Um, we even have a funny story of a farmer's uh, cow accidentally wandering into his compound and eating his crop, which he said was very, very bad for himself. Um, and what happens is that it's not just the rice that's wasted because it's exposed, 
Um, but later on, if it's badly dried, when you mill the rice, a lot of it will shatter. So you get very much lower quality rice um, because a lot of it will turn into what they call broken rice. So this is what causes a lot of the waste to happen. If it's not dried properly, it also cannot be stored properly because it will start to rot. Um, you get a lot more infestation and pests. So what we did was we basically discovered there were a lot of off-the-shelf technologies that were out there. They were open source dryers that have been designed for, I guess, smaller scale drying. Um, and what's cool about them is that they actually use rice husks, so the byproduct from milling, to generate the heat needed. And <clears throat> by using these dryers, you would basically save that 30% of loss that occurs due to drying. So that is actually a lot more better for, for food security, but it's also very uh, much better for the environment. Also because it's utilizing a wasted byproduct to power itself. But what we saw was that it took farmers up to 30 years of their income to buy one. So it's basically impossible for them to buy one. But what, and the intervention that we realized was why not customize it with local manufacturers to fit a current region's needs and run it as a service instead. So we operated like a rice drying service, a bit like a laundromat where you can bring your wet paddy, dry it for a fixed fee, and then you're able to sell it for a higher price. When you said laundromat, I was imagining like wheels of, uh, of rice spinning around, but I'm sure that's not, not what it's like. <laughs> I mean, there are variations uh, and some dryers we've seen, like uh, some that are like in a column actually do spin the rice inside um, because they want to distribute the air evenly. Um, so yeah, it might not be that far off from what you're <laughs> picturing. What led you to set up Rising? Yeah, so uh, my co-founder and I, Kisum, we met uh, at UCL. And to be honest, I would say that we've, we first, a bit of background into um how we started Rising. So we initially started as two second year students. Uh, and we, you know, in second year, we were trying different new things. We, I personally wanted to explore entrepreneurship and learn more about uh, social entrepreneurship. And so we actually participated in a competition called the Halt Prize. And that year, what they do is they are the world's largest social enterprise competition that's co-hosted by President Clinton. And what President Clinton does every year is he announces a challenge. And in our year, the challenge was to harness the power of energy to impact 10 million people by 2025. One of the industries they focused on was agriculture. Um, and I remember we were a team made of uh, Southeast Asians. So we thought we should do something that was very, um, I guess, central to our culture and the region we came from. And we had a lot of ideas in the beginning, but the ideas didn't really stick. So we had like solar powered lampposts, vertical farming, things like this. Nothing really sort of uh, caught our attention or really felt, uh, I guess, nothing really felt sort of relevant to what we wanted to do. And so that's when we decided to start looking for a problem instead of an idea. So we went out and we realized that, I remember this because it was like 2 a.m. Uh, we were like, we was just sort of like trying to understand what are the main challenges in our region. And we basically found an article that said that 80% of rice is wasted before it gets to plate. And it was just sort of like, a, what? Like, like how, how can that even happen? Because I remember we were also shocked at the, the stats. We were like, we eat rice every day. How, how can 80% of it be wasted? We later found out that that article was fake. But, <laughs> but it... But, and the number was closer to 30%. But 
but it was still a massive gap in the market. And so I think that sort of sparked a moment, an aha moment in us where we were like, that's something's wrong there. If so much of it is being wasted, there's definitely something wrong. And I think that was what sort of led to us starting Rising because we realized that this was a problem and we didn't know what solution we were going to propose, but we just sort of started uh, learning more about the problem. We started thinking like, why does it happen? Who, who are the stakeholders? How, how does this waste occur? Why is it happening? Why are they poor? And, and all these sort of other questions that need to be answered. And so what was it like to take part in the competition and go on to win as well? It was certainly, it's definitely like an experience like no other. I think it's definitely once in a lifetime. Um, the Hot Prize is, I would say, a very unique experience in that it, it's, it's a year long and there are largely four stages to the competition. The campus round, the regional finals, accelerator and the, the global finals. I think someone said like it, you, there's because of how many people apply every year, like there are about 200,000 applicants. It's like less than, than winning the lottery. So it was definitely very intense. We met teams from all around the world working on so many different challenges. I still remember to this day and we still keep in touch with some of the people we met from the accelerator. It would range from teams working with refugees, what, uh, helping them harness more sustainable water to solar-powered uh, solar powered, uh, charging units for the urban poor in India. So it was definitely a lot a lot and a very diverse uh, experience. Uh, we got to meet so many different mentors from all around the world uh, with so many different backgrounds, actually, um, that sometimes it's more than you can count. Um, but I think, I think what, I think the most relevant experience actually for us was sort of what the competition inspired you to do. So I think the part which I remember the most actually is, and I think most people will participating in the competition can also say the same is that in between the the regional finals and the accelerator is a gap and they've placed it so that it's they've sort of tailored it around the school year so that it starts that gap is the summer gap and that's where most people pilot and I think if you speak to any of the teams that is sort of like the turning point when you actually start to bring your idea to life when we actually first went to interview farmers we actually first got a dryer put it down even the first time we saw a dryer it was an experience like no other it was sort of like to see the thing you've been sort of researching about presenting about pitching about for the past like six months come to life in front of you it's just so satisfying how did you kind of go from the theoretical to speaking to farmers and I suppose testing the viability of your idea it must have been quite a daunting process Oh yeah, definitely. <laughs> we had no idea what to do when we began. I think we really started from scratch, you know. We did a lot of keyboard research, did the best we could with the information we found online, and then we realized that we had to basically uh, get in touch, you know, find communities where this problem that is, keeps popping out in all these research papers, who are the communities that actually face this challenge? So we basically realized that all the reports sort of highlighted or were created by one institution, uh, the International Rice Research Institute. And so we, we realized, well, hey, why not? Let's just go to their website and try to email them um, and learn more. And we started emailing a lot of people uh, 
on from the research papers from organizations we heard of that dealt with the dryers. Yeah, we, it was just sort of like reaching out to as many people as we can. And soon enough, we got in touch with the right person. And basically, we told them, look, we're going to present to you. And you're probably going to know more about what we're presenting to you than us. <laughs> but could you let us know where is an ideal location where the community faces these challenges, where, which we could explore further. And that's when they highlighted us, several countries. And they also offered, actually, to bring us along. So that's when we actually realized, hey, now we have uh, someone, like a host, or someone who can sort of introduce us to these communities, which was actually very important because uh, not many outsiders visit these communities. And sometimes it's very hard to gain uh, the trust of the local communities. But because they've been there for the past 50 years, uh, the locals trusted them. So it was easier for us to gain their trust and to sort of develop a relationship because of that. And the Hulk Prize, which you mentioned you, you won, which is an, an amazing achievement, uh, resulted in a seed capital grant of a million dollars. What did that enable RiceInc to do? It enabled us to pursue it full time. That's the first most uh, obvious thing. But basically what it really allowed us to do was it really allowed us to expand the work we were doing with the farmers because we started to realize how big the problem was. If you think about it, right, one dryer that we have produces, uh, can process up to 1,500 tons of rice a year. And that's, a, that's only if farmers harvest twice a year. In some regions, they can harvest more. Or if, let's say, you were able to move the dryer around, you would actually basically be able to process six times that amount. When I say it like this off the screen, just, okay, it's just 1,500 tons. I think I said that once to a mentor in the hot accelerator. And he was like, are you kidding me? Can you imagine, can you even physically imagine what a thousand tons would look like? Um, and I was like, yeah, but we need like hundreds and hundreds of them to actually make a dent on the, on the industry. And that's when we realized just how big of a challenge it is. And I guess the seed capital allowed us to take that first step. You know, it allowed us to, it's basically it gave us the belief that we can actually resolve this problem. We can actually begin to tackle this problem. You know, we can actually invest in the dryers. We can actually invest in the supply chain. We can bring the rice abroad um, and we can get the expertise we need, right? Because instead of it just being very inexperienced university students tackling this for the first time, we can actually then uh, get, gain the credibility we needed to get the help we needed to come in the expertise, um, which is actually very important for us, especially in the early stages, to get expertise in, in order to understand how the supply chain worked, in order to understand what, why does this problem occur, you know? There are definitely practices within the industry that have been entrenched for hundreds and hundreds of years. Um, sorry, not hundreds of years, but like decades. Um, and why does this happen, you know? What are the factors that are at play? Those are things that if you were to take time to learn it yourself, it takes a very long time. But if you have someone more experienced, um, it can definitely speed up the process. And I guess the seed capital gave us that credibility to go and tackle the challenge. And as a, a social enterprise, how do you balance the need to make a profit while also having a social impact? Yeah, so I think it's pretty interesting because uh, a social enterprise is sort of like a lot of people, when I first heard of it, a lot of people told me it's a cross between a charity and a business. Um, but I think through the Hulk Prize, what they taught us was that a social enterprise is some, is sort of a 
financially sustainable enterprise that creates impact. And I think the best case scenario for a social enterprise to balance profit and purpose is to actually build their impact so that every dollar they earn, someone benefits from it. Social good is derived from every dollar they earn because running a business is hard enough. Running a business and trying to do good at the same time, um, I can tell you from first-hand experience, it just makes it a lot harder. Um, and I think when you sort of build impact into your fine, like into every dollar you earn, right, then you sort of lessen the problems you have. You can focus on making it financially sustainable, um, knowing that for every dollar you earn, more uh, you generate more and more social good. And COVID has presented challenges to businesses of all types and sizes and to people around the world. What challenges has Rysync faced and how did you overcome them? Uh, well, I don't know if you ever tried to call farmers on Zoom. Um, <laughs> we, <laughs> we, we tried it uh, early on and we realized that uh, that presented its own state of challenges. I think uh, um, keeping in touch with uh, our stakeholders was very important, especially the farmers we were working with. I think the benefit, one of the benefits that we had built in early on to our model was to partner with local influencer farmers, so our local village uh, leaders, to sort of um, give them a stake in whatever machinery we would install in their villages and their communities so that they would be incentivized to uh, sort of upkeep it properly. And that sort of came through in COVID because they would actively manage the dryers in our absence or manage the equipment in our absence. Um, and it became a lot more manageable. Uh, and actually, it showed us that in the long term that that was a better model to go than to manage it ourselves. But COVID did affect us in the UK. So previously, we had been operating uh, our our direct trade rice brand, um, but we were mainly targeting uh, food service clients, which during COVID, many of them closed down. So that was a sort of more of a hurdle for us to overcome. Um, and now we've sort of switched to a more omni-channel approach where we also do direct consumers, we do retail, things like this. So it's a lot more, I think, after, now that COVID is starting to subside, or at least some of the challenges it presented are starting to subside, uh, we actually find ourselves in a much more experienced and I would say more better position actually to tackle the challenges head on. And what's been the most rewarding part of your journey with Rising so far? I would definitely say the most rewarding part of the journey would definitely be seeing the impact that you have on the ground. Um, it, like, I think the most, the most point, the most uh, memorable example I have is right after we won, actually. <laughs> so right after we won, uh, it's in, in New York. And it wasn't, it, it was great and all, right? Like, like yeah, it was a great ceremony and everything. Um, and had the time of our lives. But then what happened right after was I had to fly um, halfway across the world to our pilot farm because it was operating for its first harvest and we needed someone there. And when I arrived, I basically met uh, a farmer. She was a single mom and she started thanking me uh, and I didn't understand why. Uh, and only later on, I found out that uh, it so happened that during that time, her harvest was a bit too wet because of rain or something happened. Her harvest was ruined. And she mentioned that normally she would have to just sort of take the loss and just 
she wouldn't be able to buy a, a find a buyer because it was too wet. But because we had just so happened to install a dryer, she could dry it uh, quickly um, and sell it off. And to, for someone like her, who only depends on the two harvests for like her family, she's a single mom. So uh, she was basically, she, she, had, she brought along her children and she, they were basically saying like, oh, um, thanks so much because right now I don't actually have to go out and find another job. I don't have to try and sell off some of my, um, you know, my equipment or my animals because I can actually pay for my daughter to go to school. I can pay for food uh, on the table. Uh, I, I think in that moment, I sort of realized that it wasn't so much about like helping them get a better price or, you know, trying to, you know, be the m- most sustainable um, equipment that trying to provide them the most sustainable, environmentally friendly equipment they could find. For them, it's sort of like their livelihood. And to be able to even have an impact on that one person, it sort of showed me that like, it's worth doing, you know, like it, this is actually something that helps people. It's actually something that we're making a difference. Even if we made a difference to that one person, it's a difference to that one person. And what's next for Rising? What's next for us? Uh, so actually right now we're working to recover from COVID. Actually, we've seen a lot of, uh, due to the UK reopening, we've seen an uptick uh, in our clients for food service and what we hope to do with that is to be able to build uh, our volumes up to a point where we can then uh, source rice from origin so from the farmers we work with so that's not just about the reinvestment it's also about sourcing direct uh, from the farmers and hopefully that will actually build uh, the beginnings of like a very very sustainable supply chain that of like direct trade so from farm farm to fork Um, and that's where we hope to go in the next couple of months, that's will be our focus. And you mentioned that you sell uh, retail. Is that online or in stores? Where can I buy some of your rice? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can buy it from our website at www.eatpaddy.com um, or I will be on Amazon soon in the next month. So uh, yeah, you can get this on Amazon as well. That's really exciting. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Um, I've just got a couple more questions for you. And the first one is, if a listener is interested in setting up a social enterprise or even getting involved in the Holt Prize, what advice would you have for them? Mm, I would say look for a problem. Don't look for an idea based on our own experience. Um, what we learned is that ideas change. Ideas change very drastically sometimes, especially in a competition like Holt. But if you have a problem and the problem is actually a problem, is grounded in reality, it doesn't matter how many times your idea changes because your mission is essentially the same. You, you want to tackle that problem. The problem can't change. And so that actually becomes more of a guiding light, which is much easier to deal with. And it's much easier to adapt to because then you have a North Star that you can always go towards. And this is the same, not just for a competition, but in general for starting a company. And if listeners take away one thing from this episode of IB Green Wines, what would you want it to be? I think if listeners could take away one thing, it would be that what I learned from the story that I told (laughs) a bit haphazardly (laughs) because I was remembering on the fly um, would be that anyone can make a difference. You know, Um, what started out as uh, basically to me when I was starting second year was I wanted to explore what social entrepreneurship meant. And a year later, I was in that conversation with the, the farmer who had helped um, and all, coming back from just winning the hot prize. So it was sort of, uh, I think it's sort of 
one thing that I would really like people to understand is that they really can, you really can do anything if you put your mind to it. You can really change or impact someone. You can really help people if you really put your mind to it. Um, and I think everyone has a part to play. Um, and if everyone did play their part, a lot of the problems in the world would eventually go away. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been really lovely to interview you. Um, so thank you very much, Link. Thank you. Thank you so much.